Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. That's the text that the Lord has us in this morning as we make our way verse by verse through Luke's gospel. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, please do grab one in the seat pocket in front of you because you're going to need it in order to follow along and understand the text that we're teaching this morning. Um, Again, if you don't have a Bible, maybe you can even um, uh, grab one and and take it home with you, and uh, that can be yours. It's it's, uh, our gift to you so that you have a copy of God's Word uh, for yourself. And so we're in this text here as we're making our way through Luke. We begin chapter 23, and there's only 24 chapters. And uh, so we have two chapters left, and um, we're going to be finished with Luke, and it feels as if we've been in here for a very long time because we have, and I love this book, and I hope that you'll remember it for the rest of your life, and uh, God is um, working in my heart now to help me think through which book will come next, okay? So you have two chapters to wait and see what that will be. I'm going to keep you in suspense. Let's read our text this morning. And my prayer, once again, is that you would not only be informed, though you need to be informed, because that's what exposition is. It's the explanation of the text of Scripture, but that you would not only be informed, that you would be transformed this morning. We need to be a people who hear God's word Sunday by Sunday and leave different, changed, or resolved to be different, that we would come into the submission of God's word, the obedience to God's word. If we want our church to be holy, to be a people who love God, love each other, who are obedient and glorify God, then when we hear his word, we need to be changed by it. This needs to affect us. So my goal is not only to inform you, but to transform you, to affect you, the people who are here with the word of God so that we can be people who are changed. And so there's a lot of information in this section and in these recent sections because there's a lot of history here, a lot of historical context. But once again, uh, Luke writes, the Holy Spirit writes, in order to transform God's people, not just inform them. So let's understand this today and let's be changed by it today. Let's read Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he had belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. Now, what we're seeing in this passage of Scripture 
Is Jesus, who is innocent, being unjustly brought before the Gentile authority? He is now going to be civilly tried. So this is stage four of the corrupt proceedings. You can really entitle these, uh, this whole thing ever since we left the garden all the way up until Jesus is on his way to the cross, the corrupt proceedings. And so I've entitled this message, we're in stage four, the trial continues, Jesus before Pilate. Because that's exactly what's happening here. We've already seen stages one through three. We've seen Jesus before the Jewish authority. We've seen him before Annas, before Caiaphas, and then before the Sanhedrin. This is stage four, and we will see him before Pilate. Stage five, then, will be the trial continues Jesus before Herod. And stage six, when Jesus goes back to Pilate, will be the trial continues the final verdict. And from that point, after the final verdict, the Jewish leadership will have gotten exactly what they've wanted this whole time. The decision will have been made. Jesus will be going to the cross. There will be no changing at that point. There will be no turning back at that point, no change of mind at that point. Just an expedient execution of the eternal Son of God. But today we see stage four unfold. And just like there were three stages before the Jews, there will be three stages before the Gentiles. And here, once again, like we've seen this entire time, we're going to see Jesus's innocence. Jesus is innocent. We saw that before the Jews, and we're going to see that again before the Gentiles. Jesus is not dying or being crucified because he's guilty. He is completely innocent. These are corrupt proceedings motivated by sin. So we're going to see Jesus' innocence. We're going to also see then his willingness. He opened not his mouth. He's willingly going to the cross to die for sinners so that he can pay the penalty of sin on behalf of those who would repent and believe in his name. He is going willingly to pay the price. That's what, that, that was the plan. He came to save sinners, to seek and to save the lost. And so Jesus will be going willingly. We'll also see in this the superficial and phony proceedings, which I've mentioned. They fail to uphold justice, and they're the sin of corrupt Jewish leadership and Gentile leadership, manipulating and lying and bullying their way into killing Christ. And so this is not because he isn't true. They're not killing him because he's not true. They're killing him because he's a threat to their idolatry. He's a threat to their idolatry, which, by the way, is why everybody rejects Christ. It's not because they're, he's not true. He is true. It's because he's a threat to their idolatry and to their lives. And so we'll lie to ourselves 
and to others to avoid coming to Christ. We'll not only see the injustice here, but we'll also see in this opposition that Jesus is in complete control. As I read earlier in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus predicted, spoke before, prophesied. That's what prophecy means, to speak before. He spoke of this coming interaction with the Gentiles. The Jews would have put him on trial, then the Gentiles, and then he would be crucified. Jesus knows exactly what's taking place, and he knew it before it ever happened. He's in complete control, which tells us that this is the predetermined plan of God to crush his son. And so Jesus will not be executed because he's a guilty man. He will be executed because these political and religious leaders are committed to their sin and themselves. You have to hear this. This is why he is being rejected and killed, because these sinners are committed to their sin and to themselves, their rejection. It manifests itself differently, but it's all the same. Think about the characters for just a moment. Let's call him first Pilate, passive Pilate. Passive Pilate, he's passive. Here's what we learn. He seeks to preserve his position of power. He passes on his opportunity with his interaction with Jesus. He's a people pleaser. He, he, he uh, uh, picks not to make a definitive decision about Christ. But listen now, any lack of decision for Christ is a decision to reject Christ. And so Pilate is passive, but he will remain guilty and an enemy of God. We got Herod. Let's call him Herod the hedonist. Because Herod, he's enamored with the spectacle of Christ. One is passive. I don't really want to make a decision about Christ. One is uh, a hedonist, enamored with the spectacle of Christ, loves the, the supernatural, loves to watch the, the, the Spirit do incredible things, Lo loves to watch Jesus speak and heal. And he's intrigued by Jesus' popularity and his sayings and his signs. It even says, as we'll see next week, that Herod is glad to see him. Glad to see Jesus, but he's not glad to submit to Jesus. And so he will not submit to him as Lord, nor will he trust in him as Savior. We've got passive Pilate. We've got Herod the hedonist, and then we've got the jealous Jews. They're another group or another set of characters within this and they're religious, yet they're proud. They refuse to agree with God about their sin and repent of their sin and believe because Jesus is not exactly who they want him to be. They've expected the Messiah. They've expected the Christ. But this is not the type of Christ that they wanted. This is not the type of Messiah, Savior, King, Anointed One, fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies that they wanted nor expected, and this will not be their king. Well, we see this a lot. Those who desire some form of religiosity, and yet at the same time, when you get to know the true biblical Jesus and who he is and what he requires, he's not exactly what you want. And so all these are characteristics of people who reject Christ, passivity, hedonistic, enamored with the spectacle of Christ, religious yet proud, refusing to repent of sin and obey Christ. Jesus is not exactly 
who you want. And all three of these responses we see in, from these characters are rejections of Christ. And all three of them, though they manifest themselves differently, are the same. People who will repent, uh, refuse to repent and believe in Christ themselves. And the question might be, do you find yourself in one of these groups? Do you find yourselves in one of these groups? You see, listen, what must be true of them must be true of you. If you're to be saved by Christ, you must be willing to repent of your allegiance to sin and to self. Something that these men were unwilling to do. To repent of sin and self and to believe in Christ. You see, faith in Christ, listen now, friends, listen. Faith in Christ revolves two, involves two inseparable aspects. Repentance and belief. They're inseparable. And if you're unwilling to repent, then you'll do what these opponents do here. And you'll deny Christ. You'll reject him to keep your sin and yourself. And you'll miss out on salvation. And so my encouragement to you, even today, as we see some of these evil characters, that you repent of your sin, that you believe in Christ. You're willing to sacrifice sin and self in order to have Christ and believe in him. But that you also see today Christ's innocence, God's control. He's in control. He's doing this willingly. That you'd also see that, that though this is an unfair and unjust trial, this is part of God's determined, predetermined plan to save sinners. And so let's look at this. Let's look at this first stage of Jesus's civil trial, his first encounter with Pilate. And we're gonna see four aspects here. We're gonna see the charge, the case, the conclusion, and the confrontation, okay? The charge, verses one through two. Then we'll see the case in verse three. We'll see the conclusion in verse four and the confrontation in verse five. And I just wanna mention, you'd say, well, I thought our text was verses one through seven. If you've noticed that, good eye, you're paying attention. And um, I wanna just include those last two verses today by way of explanation because they really have an overlap as to, the, as to their, um, where they're at here. They can either be kind of in conclusion to the section we're in today, or they can introduce the next section. And we're gonna really cover them more in detail next week um, as the introduction to the next section. But we'll read them, um, verses six through seven at the end here to just help us bring conclusion to our section. So let's start with the charge. As Jesus is coming before Pilate, let's, let's begin with the charge here. In verses one through two, we see Jesus' civil trial begin right now. Luke chapter 23, verses one through two. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. This is the charge. This is the accusation. This is what they're throwing at Christ and throwing to Pilate in order to accuse Christ and make him guilty of something deserving of death. Now let's begin here in verse one. As we understand this, in verse one it says, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. 
We see this section begins with the word then. Then, let's stop right there. So where are we coming to? Then, Luke is indicating that we're coming from something to something. After something, before something. Then, what Luke is saying is after we have, what we have discussed over the past few weeks had unfolded, meaning after his two illegal proceedings, before Annas first, then before Caiaphas, and then, and that all happened, by the way, between about 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., somewhere around there. And so they came out of the upper room somewhere probably around midnight, maybe a couple hours to get to Gethsemane, that whole ordeal to take place, the, the guards to, to uh, arrest Jesus. Maybe he ended up at Caiaphas' house around 2 in the morning, or Annas' house around 2 in the morning. That lasted a few hours. Come sunrise, he went before the Sanhedrin. So we know Annas and Caiaphas, that whole ordeal lasted about a few hours, probably between 2 and 5 a.m. And after that unjust form, uh, 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 informality, we then have the unjust formality, where he goes before the Sanhedrin as the sun rises. And uh, that's at daybreak. Matthew 27, chapter, uh, uh, Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 2 say, When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders and the council together, uh, they, they came and um, had counsel together, took counsel together against Jesus. There was this consensus to put him to death, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So what's happening is that at daybreak, the Sanhedrin meets, because that what was ne- that's what was necessary The Sanhedrin had to make their decision when the sun was up. So Jesus is at Annas's, then at Caiaphas's. Then when the sun comes up, he goes to the Sanhedrin at daybreak. And then after that, they lead him to to Pilate. And um, we're told that this is early morning. This is morning Friday. John tells us in chapter 18, verse 20, that this is early morning. So after daybreak at the Sanhedrin, then he's led at this time early in the morning Friday to to Pilate. And you should know that this is Friday. This is the time of preparation, by the way, because Friday evening will be the time to take the what? The what? Passover, to kill the lamb and have the Passover meal. That's Friday evening. This is Friday morning. And so this is a time of preparation for the Passover. That's where we sit at this point. So John 18 tells us this is early morning. We know it's early morning Friday. This is a time of preparation for the Passover. That evening, they'll eat the Passover meal, kill the lamb. And so we're even told that the Jews didn't enter the governor's quarters because they didn't want to defile themselves. So once, once Jesus gets to Pilate, the Jews don't even enter his quarters to accuse him because they couldn't defile themselves in order to eat the Passover that evening. And so um, they couldn't enter the home of a Gentile and, uh, and eat the Passover. So it says, we're told that Luke, uh, uh, we're told that Pilate comes outside to do this. Now, um, Luke doesn't record this. Luke doesn't record this. And I want to make mention of a note here. Um, It's incredible 
Um, all these details that I've just told you are coming from other portions of, of, uh, of the gospel narratives. But it's incredible what God has done in these four accounts of, of the gospel. This is just a side note. This is for your benefit. It's, it's incredible. You know, I was, I was reading last night, actually, in, um, in uh, my apologetics class um, for my schooling. And, and one of the, the methods of determining a credible source is that there would be insignificant um, aspects that would, that would just make you question. They're insignificant. They don't change the meaning by any way, but they make you question some things. Because if you were to fabricate an account, you wouldn't put those things in there. You would, you would make everything match completely uh, perfectly and not allow any doubt from your reader. And so the fact that we see some of these aspects from the different gospel writers all come together and you're asking questions that don't change the meaning, but things like, Man, did it happen like this? Was it this order or that order? That happened first or this happened first? I thought he said this. Did he say that? That actually authenticates the gospel accounts more than it um, proves that they were in any way fabricated. In addition to that, you have to understand God is a genius here because he's putting four accounts together that supplemented together, complementing each other, give us just the full picture. He interprets the meaning of things that certain people say by giving us another vantage point of the account. And so all of this put together is just giving us this full picture. And it's also creating in our minds an authenticity of these four gospel accounts, creating in us even a more full understanding as we look from different vantage points. And so Luke is condensing here, but we see these other gospel accounts give us these details. It's early morning Friday. It's the time of preparation. It's the day of the Passover. They just come from the Sanhedrin. They're going to meet Pilate. The Jews didn't enter, not to defile themselves. And so Pilate comes outside and he asks a question. Now, let me tell you this. During this time, once Jesus was officially condemned by the Sanhedrin, before we get to Pilate, and probably right in front of Jesus on his way to Pilate, one thing that Matthew 27 tells us happens before we even get to this instance with Pilate is that Judas changes his mind he sees and confronts the religious leaders and he brings the money back and throws it into the temple. Now, when we see that account in Matthew chapter 27, it says that Jesus or Judas saw that Jesus was condemned by the Sanhedrin. Once he saw that he was condemned, it says that he changed his mind, he brought his money back, he threw it into the temple, and he even confessed that he had sinned. And then he goes out and hangs himself. And from the scriptures, we're told that he was of Satan. And so really, we have, I gave you three categories of opponents of Christ earlier. They had passive Pilate, Herod the hedonist, the jealous Jews, Maybe we can call Judas here, the fourth one, 
the one who had superficial sorrow. Because that's what we see of Judas. He's the fourth really opponent of Christ, this fourth category. And this is sad and also a sobering warning for all of us. Judas had worldly sorrow. The Bible tells us there's a difference between godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to life, and worldly sorrow that just ends up leading to death. And Judas had worldly sorrow, even a realization of his wrong and even a confession of sin. He was saddened about the consequences of his sin. He was saddened by their effect on himself and others. And yet, there was no repentance and no faith in Christ. He was a false disciple, a false convert who was remorseful and he was remorseful about the consequences of sin. He was angry even at injustice. But he went out, and here's the key, you ready? To deal with it on his own. And so he still rejected Christ. He didn't repent of his sin, turn from it, and trust in the forgiveness that comes from Christ, and turn and live for him. And so the result of his worldly sorrow, sorrow keeps him in a place of guilt and judgment before God. And so, man, what a warning. What a warning to us and what a sobering reality that Judas here stands as really a fourth category of opponent and it's his superficial sorrow that refused to actually turn from his sin and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of his sin and decide to live for him. And so this all happens before he gets to Pilate. And, and, um, and then we get to Pilate. But let me make another note here that I think is helpful for you. Some of you might be wondering, okay, wow, we're putting this all together and we've seen this and, and, and now this is all kind of coming into, you know, order that we can understand. Um, you know, I think Sam is just on this uh, kick of these parallel passages that we can just flip from one to the other, you know, and, and understand this. And let me just tell you this just for your help, okay? I'm not, on a, I'm not on just some different kick. Like he's doing this parallel passage thing where he's seeing between all the different passages that he wasn't doing before. I'm not on, uh, on a, uh, some kind of kick that we're doing something different than we've done before. Let me tell you why this is relevant now and maybe was less relevant before. It's because these are once and for all events. I know for certain that these accounts are all accounting of the same exact event. They're once and for all events. The crucifixion happens once. The trial before Pilate and Annas and Caiaphas and, and the Sanhedrin happens once. All of this only happens once. And so these once and for all events, we can put them together and help us to, to help us and in, be informed about this. You have other times throughout the gospel narratives where Jesus might be teaching the same thing or something similar, but they're different events. And they might not always point us to the same point. The Holy Spirit has the freedom to take Jesus's teachings at one time and, and use them to make a different point at another time. He's God. He wrote the scriptures. He's got the ability to do that. Jesus taught the same things on a lot of different occasions. 
And so we can do that sometimes if we're sure that the events are the same, but we can do it certainly if we know that they are the same events. And these are once and for all events. So we have to use these other texts to supplement each other. So verse one, with all that as the background of what's happening here, we see then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. What's being told to us here is that they're all here. Everyone's here. All 71 of the Sanhedrin, the temple guards, the Roman guards, they're all coming together. Why? Because they want to ensure, if they have to bully their way in, they'll do it, to make sure Jesus is convicted, to make sure that he's made guilty, that he's going to the cross, that he will be crucified. As they come before Pilate, they're all here. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea, which was the region that Jerusalem sat in. And it was the region of much of Jesus's ministry. And so Pilate is not unaware of who Jesus is, nor is he unaware of the animosity between the Jews and Jesus. He knows all about this. He's heard it. He's undoubtedly heard of Jesus and all the commotion with Jesus and the Jews. And after this, as we'll see next week, as the trial continues, passive Pilate will look for his opportunity out and send him to Herod, who's the Tetrarch of Galilee. And so we'll see that next. But Pilate here is the Roman authority of this region. The Jews didn't have the, the, the ability, the, the authority to execute Jesus. John chapter 18, verse 31 tells us that it was against their law to put anyone to death. And so they were forced to anxiously come to Pilate, hoping that they're going to get the verdict that they want. They bring everybody. They got the whole posse coming with them. Everyone's with them. And they wanted this whole thing to have an appearance of, judge, of justice. They didn't want this to be like other occasions where people kind of knew that they were being unjust. They wanted this to have the veneer of justice. Why? Why would you want this to have the veneer of justice? Well, to justify yourselves. We want others to think what we're doing is right. So we'll just make up a whole bunch of lies and have the appearance of justice so that people don't think that we're doing something wrong. Their conscience knew. They knew what they were doing. And so you have to understand Roman execution always involved crucifixion. And so this is what they want. They're bringing him before the governor. They have to in order to get Jesus dead, but they get Jesus killed, get Jesus dead. But they, they want the, the result that they know is going to happen if he is convicted, which is crucifixion. And by the way, John tells us that this is the exact fulfillment of the prophecy because Jesus had to go to the Gentiles in order to be crucified. The Jews would stone you or throw you off a cliff. The Romans would crucify you. And so when he got there, verse two, it says this. Look at the text. He gets before Pilate. I've explained all that to you. Verse two, and they began to what? Accuse him. Here's the charges saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. These are the charges. These are the charges. And we see that they began to accuse Jesus of this. In John's account, John 18, 29, it says, when Pilate went out there, they began to bring all these accusations 
against this man. Pilate comes out, listen, and he says this. In John's account, John chapter 18, he comes out and he says, the first words he says are, what accusations, what charges? Now listen closely to this. Okay, they're there. They can't go inside. We've already read why they've come and how they've gotten there. Now Pilate comes outside. They're all there. Jesus is before Pilate and they bring these charges, these accusations. John 18 tells us that the first word Pilate says are he goes outside and he says, what accusations do you bring against this man? Now this is important because it's clear that Pilate has heard about the animosity, the jealousy between the Jews which are the religious leaders and against Jesus. And we know that they've heard of this animosity and that Pilate is, I mean, that Pilate has heard of this and Pilate is, is kind of expecting that that's really what's behind all this because of the Jewish leaders' answers to Pilate. So Pilate says, what charges do you bring against this man? And what John tells us that they say is, if he had not done evil, would we have brought him to you? Essentially this. You're doubting that he's done evil? If he hadn't done evil, we wouldn't have even brought him to you. And so what we can expect is that this is an angry kind of defensive attitude. It assumes that Pilate's initial question assumed that this was a personal matter rather than a criminal offense. Pilate, brings, Pilate comes out and says, what has this man done? What, tell me his criminal offense. And the Jews say, if he hadn't done evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. And so Pilate here is kind of expecting that this is a personal matter. The Jews get defensive because they kind of sense that. And um, Pilate knew from the beginning that the Jews were manipulating this situation. And it really makes Pilate's actions even worse. Because he refuses to stand for justice. And if you maybe ask, are you reading into that a little bit to, to assume that Pilate knew that this was out of, out of envy and not out of justice? Well, Matthew 27, 18 just says it plainly. Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. So they knew, Pilate knew exactly that this was a, a personal matter, that there was something going on behind the scenes, that this wasn't a criminal offense. And so because of this disrespectful answer um, to Pilate. So the Jews say, if he wasn't doing any evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Because of this, Pilate then responds in John chapter 18, verse 31. Okay, take him and judge him according to your own law. That's how Pilate responds. Take him, judge him yourself according to your own law. But the Jews knew that they couldn't do that because they can't kill him. And so they resort to threats later on, which I'm going to show you. But this is where we sit. Listen now, this is where we sit. This is the situation. You can kind of put yourself there. Sometimes people come to me and say, you know, when you're telling that, it's kind of feels like I was right there. I can almost picture all of it. And I say, I love that. That's exactly how you should feel. Because the scriptures are, are clear. They give us the real picture. You should feel as if you're in that story and you can understand it. And so Pilate's in Jerusalem during the Passover. He knows of the cleansing of the temple. He hears and knows of the triumphal entry. 
He knows of the teachings of Jesus. He knows the Jews' seething anger against Jesus. Even Pilate's wife had heard of Jesus. And so this is no issue that concerns Pilate at this point. There's no evidence of a crime. There's no charge against him. And so this is where we sit. And so the Jews now at this point realize one thing. This is not going to be easy. This is not going to be easy. They're coming to terms with the fact that it's not going to be easy to get a verdict from Pilate that they desire. And so now they're going to resort to false accusation and straight lying. They can't convince Pilate by what they've determined before Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Their verdict there, do you remember what it was that they said was deserving of death? Remember what it was? Blasphemy. That doesn't mean anything to Pilate. So now they've got to come up with something to make him guilty. And so this is where even more evil, lying, fabrication, and, a f- and here's how they have to do this. You ready? They have to construct a lie that makes it seem as if Jesus is committing an offense against Rome. And so verse two, we see the charge. Look at verse two. Here's their accusations. We found this man misleading our nation. That's the first thing. Take note of that. Number two, here's the second thing. And forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. That's number two. You can put a little two there. And then there's a third thing. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now you might say, well, that sounds like a Jewish problem, not a Gentile problem. Well, it's actually a a Gentile problem in the way that they're saying it. So let's work through this. Misleading our nation. Here's what they're saying. This, This man is leading a rebellion against Rome. Uh, whom they, you know, they're portraying, we're so loyal to Rome. This man is trying to lead our people to rebel against Rome. And so this is a lie. This is evil. This is deceitful. The second thing, he's forbidding us to give tribute, uh, pay tribute. This means pay taxes, very simply meaning pay taxes to Caesar, who is the emperor of Rome. He's forbidding us to do this. And so this is, by the way, a subtle threat. And we're going to see a more explicit threat later. But basically, you know, if, if you don't uphold a crucifixion, a killing of this man who is not paying taxes to Caesar, then your job, Pilate, is going to be on the line. Because this man's leading a revolt against Rome and... He's forbidding his, this people to, to pay taxes to Caesar. And so now Pilate's kind of feeling backed against the wall at this point. Because this, if this is the accusation and it goes up the line and Pilate didn't hold the justice, then Pilate's going to be in trouble. But this is a straight lie. And you already know that because we've covered it in Luke chapter 20, verses 21 through 25. Remember when they attempted to trap Jesus? And they said, uh, they tried to trap him between either an insurrection of, against Rome or an abandonment of his people. If, if he answered one way, they would accuse him of trying to rebel against Rome. If he answered another way, they were going to accuse him of 
of abandoning and, and turning his back on his own people. So they say, uh, they say this, um, you know, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar, right, essentially? And, um, and what does Jesus say in his profound statement? Render to Caesar what's Caesar, and to God's what's what? God's. In other words, pay your taxes has nothing to do with you being faithful to God. Do both. And they couldn't trap him. And so what did Jesus say? Did he say not to pay taxes to Caesar? No, he said the exact opposite. And so this is a straight lie. So Jesus says just the opposite. So they can't eliminate him through telling the truth. So then now they're just gonna resort to lying. And so then they say, lastly here, that he, he, he calls himself, or that he himself is what? Christ, a, a what? A king. Now, we understand this in regards to the, the Jewish uh, religious um, context, but here what they're essentially saying is, yeah, he calls himself a king. And this not only has religious implications, but Pilate, you should know that this has civil implications for Rome. You should know that a king means that he wants authority. And if he wants authority, then he's planning to place himself above Caesar. He's planning to put himself in authority in Rome. And so, though Jesus has made clear that this is, his kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. He hasn't come to establish this earthly kingdom now. He's come to establish a, a, a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom of salvation and a kingdom of righteousness. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness. He's come to provide entrance into salvation. He's not come to provide an earthly kingdom and to rebel against Rome. He will come a second time, and when he comes a second time, he will establish his physical kingdom. But for now, he's establishing a spiritual kingdom, and so he's made clear to, to his disciples and to the Jews that this is what he's come to do, so they're straight lying once again, and even later, he will tell Pilate in the other gospel accounts. Remember this? You've probably heard it before. When Pilate asks, are you a king? He says, my kingdom's not of this world. If so, my father would be fighting for me. Right? And so Pilate's basically saying, this man calls himself a king, but he's not a threat to Rome. And so he would be innocent of all charges. He's innocent of all sin. I will tell you, listen to this now. There's no one who could be this innocent. I mean, Jesus is just innocent in every respect, every angle, he's innocent. At this point, if you were standing in this trial, I mean, you'd be guilty of something, <laughs> right? You'd be guilty of something. He is innocent of all of this. He's innocent of all of it. Even their attempt to paint him as one who rebels because he calls himself a king, but he's made clear his kingdom is not of this world. I mean, he's innocent in all, in all respects. And so he says Pilate isn't asking because Pilate thinks that Jesus is making himself king over Rome. He's asking because the Jews are accusing him of this. And so Jesus says in the other accounts that he has not come to make himself a rebel against Rome. Listen, listen. But he's come to do something very particular. Listen now bear witness about the 
truth. I've not come to establish a physical kingdom. I've come to bear witness about the truth and provide entrance into a spiritual kingdom. So listen now, the charge is settled. This is what, their hope, this is what they hope is gonna stick. This is, this is what they, you know, the, the blasphemy charge at Caiaphas' house is what got him to the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin to declare him guilty. Now the insurrection against Rome, leading the nation of Israel against Rome, uh, you know, leading his people not to pay taxes, making himself over a king of, of Rome. And this is what they hope will stick. These are the charges established. And now Pilate's gonna try the case. Now Pilate's gonna try the case. And so let's look at this second aspect here, which is pretty simple. Let's look at the case here. Verse three, and Pilate asked them, look at this now, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. This is the interrogation. This is the interrogation. This is pretty simple. But what we understand from this here is that this interaction during this whole time that Jesus is being charged by and accused by the Jews, he makes no answer. And so Pilate is asking him this question. He says, do you hear how, listen now, in the other accounts we see, do you hear how many accusations they're making against you, Jesus? And you're not saying anything? Listen now, though he is completely innocent, He's willingly going to the cross to pay the penalty for sin. They say, do you hear how many accusations they're making against you and you're not gonna defend yourself even a little bit? And so Pilate is amazed. There's no defense. He left everyone outside, John says. He went inside to privately question Jesus and he says, are you, and here we see in John chapter 20, or Luke chapter 23, are you the king of the Jews? So Pilate questions him about what he knows that they're upset about. And Jesus basically says to Pilate in, in, in the other places, are, are you asking because you care or because this is what they're accusing me of? Pilate is succumbing to pressure here. Listen. In John's account, Pilate says back, am I a Jew? In other words, I don't care because of what they're saying. I gotta figure out if you're making a, a, a criminal offense, but Jesus is saying, yeah, and you're succumbing to pressure here. Pilate's saying, this really doesn't affect me, but it really does because the people are furious at Pilate and they're gonna ensure that he makes this verdict. And so they're so furious that they want Pilate to make this verdict and uh, and Pilate says here, so you are a king? And, and, and uh, Jesus says in other places, I've not come to build a, a physical kingdom. I've come to testify the, to the truth. What does Pilate respond to that? What is what? Truth. Pilate's apathetic. Pilate's succumbing to pressure. Pilate's asking questions because of what the Jews are saying. He's not really asking questions because he wants to be informed. Jesus knows all this. Jesus is innocent. This is just an unfair, unjust trial by a worldly man who's passive and just wants to keep his position of power. And so we see in verse three, Jesus says this, you have said what? You've said so. And basically he's saying, it's as you say. He's giving the affirmative. And so he's affirming that he is the king of the Jews here, which in no way creates a criminal offense. 
And he is the king of the Jews, by the way. Listen now, he's the king of the Jews. What do we mean? Well, he's the promised Messiah. And so it is true. But Pilate can't find an, uh, something to, to um, make him guilty, uh, worthy of death. So number three here, we see the conclusion. Look at verse four. We're almost done here. Look at verse four. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, what? I find no guilt in this man. I mean, plain and simple, he's not guilty. He's not guilty of the accusations. And yet there's still a lack of justice because he wasn't going to stand for his findings about Jesus. He wasn't gonna seek to know more. He wasn't gonna seek to be saved. He wasn't gonna ask Jesus about the truth that Jesus just said he came to bear witness about. He, he's just passive. And he's a rejecter of Christ. And so he succumbs to pressure. This is self-protection. He wants to keep his position of power and he wants to please the people. So then he says he's not guilty. But then lastly, number four, we see the confrontation. The confrontation. And look at the confrontation in verse five. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. As the verdict is given, listen now, Pilate says, not guilty. What do the Jews do? They cry out. They cry out. We're not going to have this. We're not going to have this. They say, listen now, we, we don't care about Justin. We want him eliminated. He's a threat. They want Pilate to serve his, th their sin. So even though there's no evidence of these charges, they're going to bully their way into trapping and eliminating Jesus. And they trap Pilate. In verse five, he says, they're teaching people against Rome all over the place, from Galilee, even basically to your front doorstep. And you're not gonna do anything about it? And uh, Pilate is afraid of the Jews. And, and so if we turn to, to John chapter 19, just briefly, just turn there, John chapter 19. I wanna show you something before we close here. John chapter 19, look at this. And just look at verse... Eight, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more what? Afraid. He entered his quarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out. And here's their threat. Here's the full picture of their threat. Luke condenses. You ready? This is what they're saying. Look at it. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. That's what they were accusing Jesus of. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. That was the day of preparation, the Passover, was six hours. So he said, behold, your king, and they took him away. And so Jesus, Pilate was afraid. Pilate was afraid. 
And and Pilate succumbs to them. They threaten Pilate. If you let him go, we're gonna go to Caesar and tell him that even though this man makes himself an opponent of Caesar, you did nothing about it. You're gonna lose your job. And so the Jews here are bullying their way through. This is what's happening. And so they make mention of Galilee. They say he's stirring everything up from Galilee all the way to your front doorsteps. And so now Pilate's way out of this. Oh, you said Galilee. He was doing this in Galilee? All right. Let me send him to Herod. At that point, Herod and Pilate didn't like each other because the Bible tells us that they liked each other after he came back from Herod for the first time ever. They never liked each other before. So here's Pilate's way out. He's gonna send him to Herod. And flip back to Luke chapter 23, and we read verses six through seven. When Pilate heard this, heard what? That they was stirring things up from Galilee all the way to his front door, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Oh, he's a Galilean? And so when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. Passive Pilate, rejecter of Christ. And so, listen now, as we close, we see these different opponents of Christ. Here we see Pilate, who's passive, refuses to make a decision, and yet remains guilty. We see the Jews, who are jealous, and they're gonna bully their way through because they want their sin, and they want to live for themselves. And we see that Jesus is completely innocent. There's no warrant for his death. But he knows exactly what's gonna happen. He's a willing sacrifice, not a helpless victim. God is in complete control because he has a predetermined plan that Christ would be sacrificed for sinners. And so my encouragement to you as we close this is would you repent of yourself and your sin and have Christ or will you reject him because you want to keep sin and self? Do you see the innocence of Christ, the willingness to die, the sacrifice he's made, the purchase of sinners, what it required, and that this was God's plan to save sinners? Will you reject that, or will you embrace Christ completely? Remember now, in this section, this is the hour and the power power of darkness. God has given temporary authority to to sinners, to these evildoers, in order to deliver Christ over to death because of his definite plan to save sinners. And so my encouragement is that you would turn away from sin and self and embrace Christ and that you would thank God for this great sacrifice, this innocent lamb of God who willingly sacrificed himself to pay for sin. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning we just got a whole lot packed in in just a few verses. And Lord, I, I, there's just so much more here. There's so much more here that I could say, but I pray, Lord, that your word would just have a great effect in our lives, that we wouldn't leave here today unchanged. This is not just information. This is to transform us, to change us, to make us different Help us, Lord, not to look to, to anything else or anywhere else. There's no more important place that we can be than to be right here, right now, under your word, 
seeing your willing sacrifice, the evil intent of these men, yet Christ's complete innocence and sacrifice. And Lord, we pray that we would surrender, that we would not reject the Christ. We would not reject your word because truth be told, we really just want our sin and self. But I pray that we would submit to you. And Lord, that you would save some today, that you would cause others to repent of sin that they've been walking in. And I pray that you'd cause all of us to worship you because of your great innocence and sacrifice. In Christ's name, amen.